0: Hi, everybody. This is Blaine DeSantis, and welcome to another episode of Books and Looks. This week, we're joined by a wonderful Canadian author. Her name is Allie Bryan, and we're going to be discussing her newest book, The Crow Valley Karaoke Championships. Yeah, but before we get into that, just a word about appreciation for the continued listening to the podcast, asking you to subscribe, leave a comment if you'd like to, We're having a good time here with a whole lot of different books, and I hope you're really following it. If you can't make it one week, they're there forever. They're evergreen. You can go back and find all the old podcasts. I think you're going to really enjoy them. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about Allie Bryant, who is from uh, around the Calgary area up in Canada, and she's written a wonderful novel called the uh, Crow Valley Karaoke Championships. In today's episode and today's interview with her, she's going to be talking about some of the challenges she had with having six different narrators in a book. Yeah, she. This is not completely about karaoke. You see, the overwhelming theme of the book sounds like karaoke, but that's just where it's going to be. This is really about a study of humans and human nature and all the people who are going to be at that karaoke championship. And it's a wonderfully insightful book, some we're going to be going over a couple of specific quotes from that book, which is a lot deeper than I would have expected from a book that has karaoke in the title. Anyway, it's uh, about, again, these people who come together one night, and they come from all over this small town in Canada. Uh, there's a prison break in the middle of this. There's all sorts of things going on. There are kids running rampant. Uh, one lady thinks she's going to lose her job, and yet they are... Part of this entire um, group of people and makes this a fascinating, uh, really insightful book into human nature. And we talk about the overwhelming character who's not even in the book. Yeah, his name is Dale. And Dale died a year ago, but he is affecting everyone's lives. And so, Dale. While not a narrator, while not having anything specifically written by him or about him, he is there through other people, and it is just a really fine work. Allie Bryant, a very, very good author, she's got numerous books out. This one's getting a lot of play, a lot of push. You know, I got a good review on it on my uh, viewsonbooks.com, my website. Uh, I'm knowing you can get it uh, on Amazon. You can get it at libraries now, so that's good because some of her prior books weren't there. And so we're really happy to bring uh, Allie to you to get you, the listener, to know her a little bit more about her book, The Crow Valley Karaoke Championships. So let's go right into that interview. Allie, welcome to Books and Looks.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, you're coming to us from north of the border. Where are you located at?
1: I am in Calgary, Alberta, so about four hours north of the Montana border.
0: Hey. Can get cold up there, can't it?
1: Yes, it can. We have things called polar vortices and we do get some warm weather too, but yeah, we get a, a little bit of a mixed bag.
0: So there's no sense going out and you might as well stay in and write, correct?
1: <laughs> exactly. This is a good place to hunker down and write, especially in winter.
0: Great, great. Well, Allie, I've noticed that you've written a lot of books. So can you tell us what got you interested in writing? Is this now your full-time profession?
1: Yeah, it is full-time for the last two years, but I wasn't always a writer. I actually started out professionally in marketing and communications. And it was actually when I was pregnant with my first child, which was 18 years ago now, that I took a very simple kind of evening, nighttime college course called Getting Started Writing Fiction. And I enjoyed that, but I learned through that class that I had a particular knack for sort of humor and comedic writing. We had a a very diverse group of students, but I found when I read my work aloud, that sort of what stuck was my ability to make people laugh. So from there, I sort of worked on it a little bit more formally later on. I did a mentorship program through at the college level. It was a postgraduate certificate in creative writing. And then later I did another mentorship with my local writer's guild. And then from there, it's just been kind of reading a lot, studying craft, and mostly writing a lot.
0: Wow. So you didn't grow up wanting to be a writer?
1: I did not. I grew up wanting to go to the Olympics. I wanted to be an athlete. So (laughs) it might have been different, but I guess there's a lot of rejection and a lot of hard work in both of those endeavors. I never really found my sport. And so I turned to writing.
0: You weren't a curler?
1: You know what? I probably still could. That's like the only sport I haven't tried. So maybe there's still hope for me yet, but.
0: I have loved that sport since the 60s when I first saw it. It's, uh, I love curling. I'm a nerd.
1: It's a fun sport. I, I it think is so. a fun sport for sure. Yeah,
0: I know. But then once you got started, you are starting to churn things out. I mean, you've done a lot of different genres and a lot of books. Tell us a little bit about that, some of those other genres that you've written in.
1: I started off writing adult fiction. And again, my books sort of moved toward the sort of comedic side of things like contemporary humor. So my first couple books were in that vein. And then I wrote a young adult dystopian novel, which is part of a three-part series that was called The Hill. And then Crow Valley came out this year just in July. But a couple months before that, I had a fourth adult book come out. It's called Cock, which is French for rooster. Okay. Yeah. And then I have another two books coming out in 2024. One is a young adult contemporary story. Another is the continuation of the Hill series. It's book two. And then I also do write a lot of shorter pieces. So short fiction as well as personal essays.
0: Wow. You're busy.
1: Yeah. I, I find I don't set out necessarily to you know, like, I'm going to sit down and write a personal essay today, or I'm going to work on this novel. Sometimes I find I just start writing, and then I find the form through that process. So it's been fun to write across multiple genres, because it allows me to sort of do different things and apply different sort of literary techniques that I might not have if I was sticking to sort of one form.
0: Is there a better time of year to write for you? Do you have any preferences?
1: Not time of year, but time of day. I have been a get up at five o'clock and write probably for the last 18 years. That seems to be my sweet spot. I find the house is quiet. I don't check email. I don't get on social media or anything. It's just kind of me and my computer. And I find that's my most prolific time of day. I always said when my youngest went to school full time that I'd start writing during the day like a normal person. But I really do find that that 5 a.m. start Happens to be my best time. I've learned to adapt over the years. I can write sort of in the afternoons and evenings, but that's sort of where I get the bulk of my fast and furious writing done. Is at the crack of dawn.
0: Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, you do a fine job, and I wish in if we have any. I know we have some bookshop people who listen to this. If you can get Allie's books down here, bring them down to America. Bring them to South Carolina because they're wonderful books, but I can't get them. That's the trouble. But Crow Valley, I'm seeing popping up in the library, so that is available. So you're getting some good publication with that. Now, Crow Valley, and I love the title. I love the cover art. And tell us about Crow Valley.
1: Sure. So Crow Valley is a fictional town. It's sort of set in an area that I would say was influenced around the border between Alberta and British Columbia, which is a sort of a mountainous region, the Rocky Mountains. So picture it being a small town in the foothills of the Rockies. It is not a real town. And I sort of deliberately wrote it so that it could be sort of anywhere North America. And I certainly feel like that has landed because I get a lot of messages from readers saying, oh, I totally know where this is. It's blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, nope, you couldn't be further off. Well, I do love that everyone can sort of see their own town or a town they've passed through or a town they've lived in in Crow Valley. It certainly has those sort of characteristics that we've come to think of as small towns.
0: Mm -hmm. I think this is just a wonderful book. I'd like to know, what was your inspiration for the book?
1: So the inspiration for the book was quite literally that a very good friend of mine who is into karaoke invited me to watch her sing at the Canadian National Karaoke Championships, where a berth for the or a spot to represent Canada at the World Karaoke Championships was on the line. So this was a new experience for me. I had, you know, my idea of karaoke was sort of the karaoke you see at a bar. Only time I've ever really done karaoke was at my college campus bar back in the late '90s, early 2000s. So that was sort of what I had thought karaoke was. But little did I know there was this whole sort of subscene of karaoke that you know people that took karaoke very seriously. I'll never forget. I walked in the door. And it was like mid competition because this competition, like they go all day and sometimes they carry on for the entire weekend because there's multiple rounds and, you know, people advance. And the first person I saw singing was a gentleman and he was dressed up as a shepherd, like a full on, like he walked right out of a nativity scene. It was like he was a shepherd. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is not your mama's karaoke. It was quite different. And I just knew at that time this was, A really interesting setting for a book.
0: It certainly is. I guess there are other books about karaoke, but this one is just outstanding. And You know, the thing of it is, you laugh when you say, "Well, here's somebody dressed up like a shepherd. I'd love to know what song he was singing, because what what would you dress up as a shepherd and sing a song? I don't know.
1: know, And I can't remember, and it kills me that I can't remember, because it wasn't like I was thinking, is he going to sing Jesus Take the Wheel or, you know, something. (laughs) But it, it, it wasn't, and it wasn't Jesus Take the Staff either or the sheep. I don't recall, but I just remember being... Just completely overwhelmed because this is not what I had pictured karaoke to be. That You know, people took it that seriously that they did come out in full costume.
0: And I don't know the karaoke scene here in America or even in my state, South Carolina. But is karaoke big up in Canada? Were you aware of it before your friend invited you to go along?
1: Not really. Like, my husband spent some time living in Korea. And I know it's very popular in Asia. Like, you would book these small sort of karaoke rooms and that would be like a Saturday night out we don't really have that here. I know like there's karaoke bars and, you know, people sing karaoke and that those types of scenes. But I didn't I didn't know there were these sort of competitions. I didn't know there was a world championships. I didn't know there was like a national qualifier until my friend invited me to come watch her sing. And I marveled over this type of competition. But also I what I liked about it was that karaoke seemed to be the great equalizer, like anyone and everyone could participate. And the Audience was very supportive. So it had this really cool, supportive culture about it, too, which I liked. I thought this is a nice group of people, and everyone's just kind of singing their hearts out, and everyone was supporting each other.
0: The way we think of karaoke, unfortunately, is a bunch of drunken people singing <laughs> on a bar. And when I think of karaoke, I'm thinking right away, this is going to be a comedy book, but that's not the way this was. And even though you're a great comedic writer, this isn't a comedy book. It's wonderful because you use the championship as just a background setting for the stories that you want to tell about these people. And was that always your intention to do the stories?
1: I think the book is still funny, but it's definitely darker humor than some of my previous works. And karaoke offers so many opportunities for humor just because we do think of it sort of as a light, silly, fun thing to do. But as I sort of dug deeper into these characters' lives, it did get quite a bit darker. And when you think of the, you know, part of the genesis of this story is that they are holding these karaoke championships to commemorate the death of one of their great community members who passed away the year previous from wildfires that afflicted the town. So it starts from a dark place. You know, the humor is still there, but it got a little bit darker than I had expected. I still find it sort of funny, but yeah, it's really about people and people, you know, it is not all karaoke and sunshine and good tunes. There's ballads there too.
0: What I like especially is you have a lot of characters and you don't have a single narrator, the omniscient uh, narrator. Every character is their own narrator in different chapters and I think that moves this book along so well. Was that always your intention to have this being told from so many different points of view?
1: Yeah. I think when I first started the book, choosing Dale, who of course is our town sort of legend, our karaoke star, our hero prison guard, he was sort of everyone that everyone knew in the town and looked up to and respected. He is sort of the glue that keeps these five characters and keeps the story sort of moving forward. But Ultimately one of the themes of karaoke is this idea of community and sort of the elevating power of community and being able to lean on each other, especially in times of crises, which this town has been through, of course, with wildfires. You know, they were forced sort of in the past to work together and and they're continuing to do so. So I think by giving equal voice to five different characters, it really speaks to that sense of community. No one really stands out, no one really takes over the story. They're all sort of integral and connected and a part of the town story.
0: Are these characters based on people you know, or are they just creations of your mind?
1: Creations of my mind. I know when I started out as a writer, as I'm sure a lot of authors start, more of my earlier work would have probably been influenced by real people, particularly in my first book, Roost. A lot of the children or the child characters were sort of directly influenced from some of my kids because they just said fabulous things that were too hard to ignore and use as dialogue. But as I sort of grew as a writer, I really had to sort of avoid using people that I knew because I find in order to really develop a character with intention that serves the story first, you really need the creative control to make that character up. And any time I would sort of think, oh, that person would be a good character. Well, you know too much about someone that starts to influence the story and not the other way around. I think it's really important that the character serves the story, not that the story serves the character. So for me, these are made up people. It's not to say that there wasn't, you know, something I read, a comment on a blog post or something I overheard in a coffee shop or on the bus where that might not have bled into some of these characters, but mostly they're wholly created for the purpose of the specific work that I am trying to create.
0: Okay. Well, as you said, there are at least five narrators and a lot of characters. As you wrote the book, did you start feeling closer to any one character or any one storyline as opposed to another one? Or was this always your intention, where you were going?
1: It was pretty intentional. What I did find is that Thematically, everyone's story was starting to link tighter and tighter. And so really what the characters in the karaoke book are experiencing, two things. One, they're all fighting some type of fire. So I use the fire as sort of a metaphor throughout the book. And some of those fires are small. Some of them, you know, they're just smoldering ashes. Some of them are fighting really big challenges, you know, something maybe more akin to an inferno. And In each case, their circumstances are a little bit different. In some cases, they started their own fire and they're dealing with the consequences of that. In some other cases, someone else has imposed that problem, those fires on them. So to me, the link or where I felt close to the story was through the characters, their struggles, and this idea that there's nobility in the struggle that we can't always control. We can't control so much of our lives. We think we are in control a lot more than we actually are. And so these characters are really doing their best with the resources they have, with the cards they've been dealt, with the fires that are kind of going off around them, and trying with some type of grace and poise to do the best they can.
0: If you had to give a short little blurb as to exactly what is the book about, because we've gone all around that, how would you describe the Crow Valley karaoke Championships.
1: I would say this is a book about community. It's a book about second chances. It's a book about people reconciling the lives they thought or expected they were going to live with the lives they are actually living and seeing in that, that there is, again, that nobility in the ordinary, in the everyday, that, you know, it's the small things that ultimately make up a life. And this, just this idea that everyone is doing the best they can.
0: And that's the thing. You, know, you bring everybody together under this banner of a karaoke championship. If you just write it as a regular book of a town, boom, 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 and you go from a character to character, doesn't have the same feel, that same closeness this community has. Well, this weekend, I'm talking about your book with some friends who are over. I said, yeah, my next one's going to be with Allie Bryan. And what's the title? I gave him the title. I said, no, 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 no. It's not uh. I said, let me just read you. A couple of quotes. Oh, so i like to do the same thing with you because friends out there, if you get this book, you may think it's one thing, but this lady has got some amazing insight she's written in here. I love it. She has a character named Molly who says at one time, motherhood was a con man. Motherhood was a thief. Wow. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I grew up sort of late 80s and 90s And that was a period. So I'm considered sort of Gen X where women in particular were told that they could have it all. They could have everything. They could do everything and they could do it successfully. And I believed that. So I spent a good portion of my life trying to do it all. And of course, none of us can do it all. And I think motherhood in particular is one of those things that's portrayed as being sort of beautiful and easy and intuitive and instinctual. And we all have these sort of. It's, you know, built in us that we can do it. And it is incredibly challenging. I think we're in a period now where women are talking a little bit more about sort of the challenges of motherhood or the realities of it, but it certainly can be a thief. You hear of women not knowing who they are anymore once they become mothers, they lose a sense of their identity. You lose time, your own personal time. In many ways, you can lose years of your career. So it's not to say that there's not gains from motherhood, but Molly is really knee deep in motherhood with four boys. And she is in that position where she has sort of lost herself, lost her identity. Her entire identity is wrapped up in being a mother. And that's not served her well.
0: Again, I thought that's a fine, fine line that you wrote there. I read it to my wife and she said, Why I understand what she's talking about. Because you have one ideal, what is it going to be? And then what is it really is? And you know, that's wonderful. Then, then you switch, and that's the thing. Not only do you have a great views of women, but then you go to a character named Brett, and you give, I think, a maybe one of the best descriptions. For Friends, let me read you what she writes, what Brett says or thinks. He says, the couch, olive-colored, overstuffed micro suede, so comfortable, he lost his marriage, and it seems, wow, that is One powerful book, How Many Men. Where did you get that from?
1: You know, I, again, it's so funny about being a writer is you just pick up these little tidbits, little information, little bits of sound bites, you know, snapshots of articles and stuff over the years. And gosh, it was probably, well, it was around the time I was writing this book. Clearly, I remember reading an article and it was just one of those things that came across my like Facebook feed. And it was about women in their early fifties that were leaving their marriages in droves. And the reason was not the big reasons that we think about when we think about the end or the demise of a long marriage. So not the affair, not someone becoming a gambling addict, not because, you know, some of the larger catastrophic things that we tend to think end marriages. These women were leaving because of a series of smaller things over the course of their life that they just could no longer deal with. So it could be that, you know, they were the only one to ever buy the Christmas presents. They were the only one to ever sign the permission slips. They were the only one to ever offer to do all those sort of extras. And what really got me about this article is the men never saw it coming. Like they just were completely unaware that their partner were even thinking about these things. And so they summed the whole departure up to, oh, it must be menopause, menopause things, <laughs> you know, and which I thought was really interesting. So, You know, Brett is one of these guys who means well, but is probably blissfully ignorant, but also probably intentionally choosing not to engage in, you know, maybe those activities that are considered more domestic or motherly or just as part of a partnership. And so, yeah, that's kind of where that idea came from.
0: But Brett, and I may be mistaken, but if my memory serves me right, wasn't Brett best friends with Dale? Yes, I think he tries to emulate Dale and everything he does or thinks, and he can't. And I think there's a frustration level in him, but he realizes this. At one point in time, he finally gets it. And I got to hope that going forward, he keeps getting it. But so well done. And you know, that brings me to the other character, the overriding character that's not a narrator, that's not in this book, other than a name, and that is Dale. Tell everybody about who Dale is and that whole thing. You've touched a little bit on it before. But let's just a chance to really expand on what Dale does in this town.
1: Yeah, so Dale has the reputation as being sort of the local hero. He was the top pitcher in their softball league. He was, you know, on the town search and rescue. He is a guard at the prison. He is the highest finishing karaoke singer the town has ever produced. He's just that sort of all-around good guy, and we know everyone in every town probably has that sort of model citizen. And every one of the five characters, each POV, is tightly connected to Dale. They're intrinsically linked. And so Dale ultimately becomes the one, even though he is not there, other than as ashes that his widow keeps in his thermos, but he connects them all. But more importantly, what he represents is this notion I think that none of us are as really good as we think we are, but none of us are as bad as we think we are either. So it's that basic idea that both good and bad coexist within all of us. When you think of where we are in our current zeitgeist, the cancel culture, the sort of sanctimony we see online, this book really acknowledges that all of us have the capacity for both good and bad, which is why... Not really labeling either of these things as being good or bad, but just this idea that it's potential for all of us, but that we can all grow from our experiences, that we can all have those sort of second chances. And of course, the fun thing that I did as a writer was from most people's perspectives, we have one glowing version of who Dale was. And it's only through the prisoner, Marcel's perspective, that we see a different side of Dale. And I kind of like that because in the end, no one really sees Marcel's perspective. The reader does, but the other characters, the other residents of Crow Valley really don't see that side of Dale. And so he is sort of immortalized as the good guy, but the reader is let in on this secret that, you know, maybe not everything was as it seems because he had quite a different relationship as a prison guard and how he treated Marcel.
0: Yeah. Do you have any favorite characters in the book? Somebody you like writing more than the others or like their storyline more than the others?
1: No, I mean Marcel was fun to write because it was a very different perspective and character to jump into, being that he is a young sort of Gen Z criminal prisoner with some major childhood trauma, so there was probably a lot more research that had to go into his character in terms to getting that right. And he seems to be a favorite among readers. A lot of people really like him. But Brett was fun, too, because a, a lot of the comedic parts of the book come from his actions. It's from that sort of vulnerability that exactly what you nailed earlier, that all this guy ever wants to be is Dale. And he makes more mistakes because he can't just sort of accept himself. So I really like writing vulnerable males. But they were all sort of fun and they were all challenging in their own ways.
0: Dale's wife. Like you say, there's some dark comedy in this she carries his ashes, which we think are his ashes, in her thermos bottle everywhere she goes. Not only that, she wears a, like a miner's helmet. And where did that come from? <laughs> Constantly.
1: So we know that the last time that Dale performed karaoke, he was dressed up as a miner and he doesn't do very well and he blames his poor performance on his helmet or his light being too tight, which kind of horrifies Roxanne because she's always sort of helped him with his costuming to make it sort of as authentic as possible. And so she tries it on this headlamp and she never takes it off. And she learns that it was in fact too tight because it shouldn't be fitting her much smaller head, but she keeps it on. And it's sort of the equivalent of leaving the porch light on. That's kind of what she does is in the hopes that she's somehow not going to miss him. So I read a lot about death. I just do. It's one of those topics that I gravitate towards. And, you know, I've always been fascinated by the variety of ways in which grief can manifest and how everyone reacts to grief completely differently. Some people, you know, and I don't want to say bask because it sounds like it's intentional, but some people just want to be, they don't want to leave it. They want to sort of stay and be knee deep in it. Other people want to avoid it and don't emote and don't process it and choose not to. And Roxanne is one of those characters who's like right in with the grief and not ready to let it go. And it's put her job in jeopardy. And really that's sort of what she needs to learn is this ability to sort of move forward.
0: Yeah. Well, when you write from all these different characters and their different points of view and their different perspectives, et cetera, A, is that a challenge to keep going from one to another to another? And B, do you write these sequentially or do you I'm gonna. I want to get here. I want to get to that part a little bit later on, and then I bring them all together.
1: It was a challenge from the point of view of like getting the timelines correct, the logistical side of it. Like, oh well, there's no way that Marcel could be here because the last chapter we saw him, you know, on Crow Mountain Road. So there was definitely a lot of skill and patience involved in making sure that I had all of the logistical details correct. I did write it in a linear fashion, so. You know, it's not like I wrote all of Roxanne and then I work all of Val. I did write it sort of sequentially. And then, of course, the skill or the trick is to have those other perspectives, those other characters appear in the previous chapters because it can be really disconcerting if you have five POVs and yet you only see one character every fifth chapter. So it was really important to make sure they were all sort of integrated and sharing these spaces, which is why the settings are very limited. You know, the whole book takes place either at the karaoke hall or in prison. And those setting choices also allowed the characters to be constantly interacting and sort of weaving in and out of each other's chapters. So was it hard? A little bit, just took a little bit more work than if I was writing from a single point of view and in a linear fashion. But each character had their own want and they had their own need. Oftentimes the want and the need were in conflict. Marcel's a good example of that. What he really wants is to get out of prison, but what he really needs is familial love. And we know that if he escapes, if he successfully escapes prison, he will never have the familial love of his daughter because he will be a criminal on the run pretty much for the rest of his life. So there's that sort of sacrifice. So in some cases they win, sometimes They lose or, you know, they get what they want, but not what they need or vice versa. And then in the case of, say, Brett and Molly, they both have the same want. They both want to win karaoke real bad for different reasons. And that's kind of fun to play with, too, because then the reader can say, like, I I really want Brett to win. So it causes that sort of a little bit of tension and conflict story.
0: For those who can figure out what we're talking about, Marcel is a prisoner at the regional prison up there, and he escapes during the karaoke contest. And then it is one of the most convoluted escapes I have ever read, being aided by guards and everything else. His character is fascinating. Is he bipolar? Because one minute he wants to do damage to people, the next minute he wants to make love to people, the next minute he wants to be a father. What is it with this guy?
1: So he suffered from childhood trauma. He has PTSD. He's a victim of child abuse. So he has this complex... PTSD that is only like he's just sort of started to work on himself and he's learning a little bit more about his history and and why he is the way he is. And for a lot of people that end up in our prison systems, there is a story. There's a backstory. There's a reason that they have made the choices, the life choices that they have. And so for him, yeah, he is this character of extremes as he is learning to navigate his world as an adult, as someone in prison, as someone with complex PTSD. As far as the escape is concerned, it almost veers on comical, but in reality, these are the opportunities that people take and read a lot of nonfiction, not just in a prison sense, but in terms of like history and war. And when people want to escape, they find the most ridiculous opportunistic ways to make it happen. And so really a lot of crimes happen out of opportunity and My sisters worked in prisons. She spent most of her career in that system. So she was a great resource. And of course, I looked at some of the great escapes and the not so great escapes that prisoners have made over the years. And so she gave me sort of the easy ways to do it, which is obviously manipulating someone on the inside to help you escape or finding a clever hole, not necessarily a physical hole, but you know, you find some sort of crack in the system. And those aren't often the ways they work. It's always the fluke situation where someone saw an opportunity and took it.
0: That's what happened. Wow. It's really something. And while we can't get into too much though, but kids play a big part in this book too. I mean you got Bretel is bribing his two kids with something and then we got other ones who has little kids running around the karaoke championships. that. Are your kids in there? Are they are they part of these characters or are they quirkers like that?
1: <laughs> no, not really. I mean, okay. again, I probably <laughs> use more of my kids' vocabulary and some of the crazy things they said when they were little in my very first book. But I love writing kids. That does seem to be one of the things that people pick up on. They're like, I love the kids. They're so real. They're so honest. And part of the reason I love using kids in literature is because they are honest and they are not filtered. And sometimes they say the cruelest things, but they're not intentionally cruel. There's a part when it's Molly's turn, and you know we know how important this competition is for her. And her son passively says, well, no one cares. And he's meaning it in a way to comfort her because she misses her turn. But it's that is just, you know, for someone who is just trying so desperately to feel like anything other than a mother, that line is just I mean, that is like, oh, that is probably one of the meanest things that someone could say to someone in that moment. So, kids offer that level of intuition and insight that adults either often can't say. It would be inappropriate to maybe say what we were actually thinking or say what's unfiltered. But they also have incredible insight. We don't give them enough credit. They see and they perceive a lot more than we are aware. And I feel that way about kids in real life. They're a lot smarter than we give them credit for, they're a lot more complex than we give them credit for. And I think oftentimes in literature, they're kind of very one-dimensional. And I try and present kids as I know them, which is to be complex, smart, insightful, intuitive, and incredibly in tune with what's going on with all the adults around them.
0: Yeah. And also wreaking havoc on their parents' lives during this karaoke contest as we go, oh yeah, yeah. It's great. That's some of the funniest stuff in there. Now we can't give away the ending, but I want to know, Multiple winners, multiple losers. Are there any losers in this whole thing when we get to the end of the karaoke championship? Or has everybody come out a winner? Or are there any winners?
1: I won't say who, but I think that winner of karaoke is implied. And I think that gives some resolution to that particular character. That character ultimately got what they wanted. But I think we spend so much emphasis in society on winning and losing without really acknowledging that most of us will never necessarily win, that there is a high tolerance for mediocrity in our society, for sort of averageness. So I don't really think, other than maybe who won the competition per se, no one's really winning or losing, but they're all, I would like to think, better off in some capacity because of this one night of karaoke.
0: I think Dale's wife, who was a judge of this, if I'm not mistaken. I looked at her at the end of the book, and I thought she came out a much better person because of what's been going on there. I think that revelation that Brett had about his marriage and sitting there on the couch, I'm hoping that he becomes a winner out of the whole thing, which makes his wife a winner, too. In a strange way, maybe even Marcel's a winner by the end. <laughs> you got to hope. It's an absolutely wonderful book, and you've done a great job with everything. And What's next? Is there going to be a karaoke rerun championship coming up or what's going on in your life?
1: I don't have a follow-up to karaoke, but I have heard people say, well, the logical thing is we got to find out what happens with Marcel. So I thought, oh, that could be something really fun a couple of years from now to maybe explore Marcel and Crow Valley in the future. I actually did that recently in my book that came out in May. Cock was the 10-year sequel to my first book, Roost. And that was so fun to flash forward 10 years and to catch up with this family and sort of see what was happening. So maybe, never say never, there will be some sort of follow-up to karaoke, but it's not planned right now. I have a couple other works of adult fiction that I'm still very in the middle of. You'll definitely see some more humor, and they'll probably oscillate between being darker, a little darker humor, like in the Crow Valley Karaoke Championships, and then something a little bit more familial, a little lighter truer sort of comedy in something like cock. So that's sort of we are all continue to write in those spaces.
0: And folks, that's spelled C-O-Q, by the way. Just so you know that, cock is spelled C-O-Q.
1: French for rooster, and the first book was roost. So you can sort of see the connection, and the yes. family is grieving in Paris, which, of course, we know the rooster is a national symbol of France.
0: I can see Marcel showing up at the national karaoke championships as they are all chasing after him <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> But anyway, it's a it's a wonderful, delightful book. I think it's spectacular. I think you've done a great job, and kudos to you. I am I wish we could get more of those earlier works down here in the States. We're just somehow or another limited. I don't know how we can get them down here, but they're good works. I, if they're as good as this one, then I know they're all winners. So thank you so much for coming on today and spending some time with us, Allie.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a fantastic conversation.
0: Great. Friends, we'll be right back after a moment. Well, thanks so much, uh, Allie, for joining us today from Canada. We really appreciate you coming on, spending some time with us and helping us get to know a little bit about you as well as your newest book. And I think, as I said, this is a really, really fine effort. I think all of you who uh, read the book are going to really, really enjoy it. But before we go today, I've been looking at something. And, and this week, I've been looking at tourism. You know, not me. I don't tour anymore. No, I I, I'm at home now. (laughs) I'm pretty much homebound. But I have been reading a lot of really disturbing stories about tourism, um, and it's all over. They're coming from Europe. It's coming from Asia. Even here in America, how boorish! That's right, boorish people are when they're touring. And I, it's it's. Well, I what can I say? There's a rumor that COVID's coming back. Okay. And now the Japanese are thinking of putting restrictions on tourism again. Um, But not just because of COVID. They're trying to limit the number of people who are coming into Japan because they're just being overwhelmed by tourists. We've heard Spain say the same thing and people moaning and groaning. Oh, the influencers say you should go to Spain. And well, it's so crowded. First of all, don't listen to an influencer. Make up your own mind if if you want to go somewhere. But more importantly, you know, if you're there, you're a guest. You're a guest. Don't act like a boob. Don't like a slob. It's, it's so upsetting. Earlier this year, a tourist in Italy put graffiti on the Colosseum in Rome. Now, this is a person from Ireland. And you know what his defense was? I didn't know it was that old. Get the hell out of here. You didn't know it was that old. What a dumb person you are what that person should be banned. banned never again do you go back to italy it's just unbelievable that people would do that who would think of putting graffiti on something like that and the newest one that happened last week in florence this one has me really enraged because florence is one of my favorite towns in italy visited many many times some dumb jackass and that's what he is sorry if you don't like the wording but some dumb jackass from Germany climbed on top of a statue in the Piazza in Florence. From the, the statue was uh, from the 16th century, so it's done in the 1500s. Climbed to the top to take a selfie of himself on top of the statue and then broke off a piece of the top of the marble statue. That's right. Defaced the statue by breaking it off. To take a selfie. Why? What is it with people and selfie and tourists with selfie? What I've heard is the Italians are charging this person. They know who it is. He's going to be charged with uh, uh, some crimes. But you know what? He should have been deported. He should have been jailed and then deported. And the people in Germany should sit there and bring charges against him too. This guy should be banned from traveling forever. Your passport is now revoked because you're a dumb jackass who does stuff like that. This has me terribly upset, terribly upset. I've never made it to the Louvre, okay? But for people who've been to the Louvre, you probably know what's happening. People go and swarm to the Mona Lisa, which is a fantastic, fantastic piece of art. But they don't care about the art. They turn their back to the art, the back to the painting, so they can take a selfie of them in front of the Mona Lisa. Get out of here. Get out of Dodge, you know? I, I, Oh my, oh my, I get so offended by this boorish behavior of tourists. It is terrible what's going on nowadays. Everybody is entitled. Everybody thinks they have the right to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, and we're going to put it on social media. Yeah, well, you know what? They should be banned from social media. These people should be arrested who do things to art. And how about the stupid morons who are throwing paint on pictures because they're protesting the environment
1: guy yeah
0: oh help me lord help me I tell you tourists because that's what they are they're all there t- touring and looking and they're doing things and it's terrible anyway that's what I've been looking at it set me off I hope it sets you off because it's upsetting and if you go to travel I hope you're telling yourself or your party that you're with or your kids or grandchildren hey you're a guest you're a guest in somebody's country act appropriately act appropriately So anyway, on behalf of viewsonbooks.com, on behalf of Podcast Studio X, this is Blaine DeSantis for Books and Looks saying, may all your leaves be pages in a book.